Welcome back to another exciting edition of the Twin Geekcast, where we're recording using <laughs> uh, Zoom peripherals. We, you have a uh, explain your wardrobe choices. Today. Well, I'm I've come to the show today as uh, Captain Smallbeard, uh, wearing my signature hat and eye patch here, and you appear and, to be uh, some kind of Zorro man. <laughs> yeah, I've got the Zorro mask and the in the large hat. Uh, I've yeah. got my fedora. Um, it, yeah, it doesn't look as much like a Zorro hat. It looks more like a Humphrey Bogart hat. But uh, kind of is, yeah. We we didn't have a very good intro, so we just spent twenty minutes sticking around with the filters on Zoom, and we thought that was a better introduction than anything we could come up with this week. Because we're really good at designing audio content, you'll listen <laughs> to this whole episode that we've recorded using um, props that nobody could see. I I think it'll give it a nice a nice flavor. Like you'll you'll yeah. be able to sense it underneath all of the the uh, critical discussion that we usually have here. Just imagine I I have an eye patch and Calvin has a mask the entire time. I think yeah. that'll that'll uh, pepper things up a little bit. Just uh, imagine that anyway. Um, usually it's true. <laughs> well, uh, I think we got lots to get to this week. Lots of uh, films we both watched, and then a very exciting feature film that uh yeah. you kind of just watched out of the blue i'm assuming yeah. per per my recommendation what was that like seven episodes back <laughs> yeah i think it, it came up on our end of year list last year your number one i believe it uh, was it was in fact and uh maybe it'll be your number one for this year we'll see well it's a, it's early yet but uh today we have little fish a pandemic movie from seattle uh La Girona. Um, we have <laughs> right, a, we I have know. A, you, uh, come on, I know you know that one's not right. <laughs> we have a documentary that you're doing, and I have a documentary. Um, we're sharing docs. That's that's what friends in hats do. Yep. Um, we're we're good friends we have who love to fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ball of fire. We're we're good friends. That what? Oh, we love docking. That's what I was gonna say. Oh yeah. I, I learned what that is. I know you uh, did from from uh, a festival, I believe it was. Not, yeah. not not a doc, but it was a film about docking. But a lot of docking, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> it was about spaceships and how they dock into each other, but they were dicks. Yep. <laughs> I, maybe that's one we'll cover sometime too. Was it good, or or, or were you just kind of dumbstruck by it? Just just dumbstruck. <laughs> well, it was educational, so I'll consider it a doc. <laughs> I feel like I've spread the good word about docking, so I guess it has improved my life in a significant <laughs> way. Um, I'm I'm admits doing um, another festival, South by Southwest, so a lot of my attention is there, but I can't talk about anything for two or three more weeks. That's that's a shame. Do you want to do you want to wax a little bit on the uh, the drawbacks of uh, embargoes? I know you were talking a little bit about it before the show here, but uh, go ahead and vent your frustration a little bit. I have this Sasquatch thing from Hulu that I desperately want to talk about for at least an hour, and I embargoed for four more weeks, so uh, look forward to Sasquatch content uh, once we could find it. Uh, maybe by then we'll have found the Sasquatch. I'll be uh, searching in the woods, and uh, I just went into our room, and I realized that my wife's been embedded into um, Sasquatch docs for the last night, and I, I think it's taken over the household, so I... Sometimes you can't talk about uh, what controls your life and and how you feel about things until it's too late. Like I'll watch twenty more movies before I get to talk about <laughs> Sasquatch from Hulu. Yeah, that's 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 the the shame about all these embargoes. Some of them are just like ridiculously far in advance, and like yeah, 
you understand why it is because they got to build up the proper publicity and stuff and yeah. they want to control it and send out the word all at kind of once and make it a targeted you know uh attack but uh you know it's it's much harder for critics to to discuss a film that they watched you know like a month ago when they you know all they do is watch a constant stream of movies and so they're inundated right. with that like as good as we are at remembering you know lots about movies we have to do it a lot so <laughs> we we also watch so many movies that we forget more than most people know about movies i mean just naturally we're going to some stuff will slip through which which is nice in the case of a film like we'll discuss later because then you're like oh i forgot how fantastic this movie is even though i right. knew it was already fantastic i forgot the specific details that all kind of culminate in making it such a brilliant work the hardest for me was i saw it first cow this time last year and i had to review it in july it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a six month break there I, I know you wrote like a little bit of it like right out the gate but then you, yeah. you still kind of had to go back and you know like add in some more or kind of recontextualize a little bit of it right. it was well and and that was kind of compounded by the uh the, the pandemic delaying it like it was supposed to come out like a, in a week and then like all the theater delays came down at once and it was like oh well I guess first cow is not because everyone was kind of holding back and they weren't sure when the release was going to be. They're like, maybe we could do it in like another month. We'll see. You know, like like nobody had the foresight to push back an entire year at that point. Yeah, maybe they could have because it might have benefited from a twenty twenty one. Everyone but, was too optimistic. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. Um, and there was a uh, Monos two years ago, which I think had a seven month lead before I was able to talk about it. Six or seven months from Sith. That one was also torturous, but uh, usually it's just a month, and by then I, I just don't really want to talk about anything in depth anymore. Yeah, you, you've lost lost the enthusiasm a little bit, you know. Like even even waiting a week to discuss this, yeah. this feature film, you already got me like ah, you know, I'm hyped up to, to get to it. <laughs> but we got our hats, um, and our we have our site alphabetized. I guess that's a new. Oh feature. yeah, uh, that's something good to highlight. Uh, good work doing doing that. That was something spent, that was kind of uh, out of the blue. <laughs> I spent six hours alphabetizing all of our reviews and going through and cleaning up all our uh, content. So that's all there for you under a drop down. So and it, that's for that's for all you that. listeners out there. Calvin spent a good uh, Sunday afternoon working on all of that. I'm happy to have it organized. It'll be a cinch now. I mean. We already have our new stuff plugged in there. It'll be easy. Yeah, now we just gotta... I'm assuming that it, it's just... Will it automatically be doing it, or we still have to manually add new new reviews to it? It's a it's a manual. It'll take me ten seconds each, though. Just gotta remember every time, that's all. Right. <laughs> that's the hard part. It might be updated every two weeks or so. We'll, we'll see. New new movies that we can talk about alphabetically. Uh, do you, do you want to go over the, the films that you brought for us this week? Yeah, absolutely. How does the alphabet work? Um, <laughs> I suppose that Little Fish would come before La Jorona. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think that's how the alphabet works. Little Fish is a Seattle-based um, virus movie that was filmed way before uh, quarantine hit us over here. The editing wrapped up like a, a week or two before in Seattle. Of course, like it... it the coronavirus came through Seattle, at least our first documented case in the U.S. So uh, there was some weird thing where they had to go into their editing and suddenly they were in their own quarantine after making a movie about it. It's like they didn't leave their production. 
Um, I, I've been very suspicious of any movies like this that have come out. Uh, I think fairly. I think uh, it takes a lot more tact than some of them have, like Songbird and uh, several <laughs> others that are very exploitative, while so many people are still dying from this virus. Uh, the good news is, because it was filmed and thought of before, and it's based on a short story from several years ago, a really good short story. I, I forget the author, but it'll be in my review on site. Um, there's there's still like a confluence there. It's like, oh, here's the virus spreading in an area I'm in, and we get to play into like the beautiful grays and blues of like a Seattle landscape, but it's distant enough. It's about memory loss and Alzheimer's, which is generally relegated to like late stage actors to show off their craft. Uh, but this affects all people. Like it, it affects the young. We have Olivia Cook and a, I think it's Jack O'Dell. I'll, I'll have to fix it later if not. Um, and they're in a romance, uh, but they're both beset by this memory loss. And so it, it plays kind of like a young adult fiction in some cheesy ways, but I, I really enjoyed it. I, I'd like folks to see Little Fish. Yeah, I think it's uh, really interesting as well to get a film that's actually set in Seattle. Uh, it's not very common, uh, and when it is, it's usually not filmed in Seattle, I think as you kind of highlighted in your uh, review there. But uh, the city here is is not one that usually gets a lot of depiction. I think it's uh, more kind of a niche thing. Uh, and it might be in this the case in this film too, but uh, always nice to have that representation. You know, particularly for, for us here, we're always kind of seeking that out. And by us, I mean you. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, so much cheaper to shoot in Vancouver, BC. So um, they, I, I see why they get all their breaks when they do that. And uh, Seattle doesn't allow that. So. Yeah, it'd be nice if they, they did. Uh, maybe we should lobby yeah. uh, Governor Inslee or something to create some tax breaks for filmmakers here. I, I mean, I've wanted more Seattle films for so long. There's just so few that, of course, I would celebrate them when, you know, they, they start dripping out. Maybe we need to make Seattle more interesting. You know, yeah. maybe that's just the problem that nobody wants to hear about Seattle it, or, or the audience is well, so selective. It's just mostly the Calvin fan club. The problem is it's so gorgeous, but we just stay indoors because it's always raining. <laughs> I, I mean, you have so much scenery and stuff, but the weather will never cooperate with the production either. So. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of the the big deal there. That's why a Pacific Northwest film hub uh, probably wouldn't work out so well because the weather is uh, unpredictable, and when it is predictable, it's all muddy and murky. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no way to really get the right lighting for it's, your film, or you it's know. not really conducive for uh, ex exterior film filmmaking. Uh, maybe we just need to make giant interior sets where we can control the weather, and we just have giant I, sound stages over the city. Let's uh, let's just uh, plow over downtown, and uh, we'll, we'll make it a big film hub. I just feel like the solution is so easy. Like like with Lynch, you just play into the greens, or uh, with like Lynn Shelton or Linklater's film, Where Do You Go, Bernadette, or this, you just play into like uh, the blues and grays of everything and you you try not to go for the naturalistic lighting and everything then you should be fine um i, I really like it though uh, and it was so interesting to me because my wife and i had different takeaways about what actually happened uh, because it is in a diary format and you do question the reality and perception of the character uh, you wonder which parts are actually authentic and which parts are uh, losses of memory as she's going uh, very interesting stuff not to spoil it but a uh, it goes somewhere where we both had a different conclusion. That's a very interesting take. And again, good to hear that there is at least one pandemic-themed movie that is not a total cash grab and like soulless uh, exploitation of the audience. 
Uh, Maybe it'll be the last. I I don't know. That one that I showed you seemed kind of promising. Maybe you'll check it out and and get back to us on it. Next week, let's do that one. (laughs) Yeah, if you seek it out. Yeah, I've I've been looking for it, but I'm still on the hunt for the great white shark. (laughs) Virus shark was was what it was (laughs) called. (laughs) How about La Girona? Um, Have you heard of that? Are you going to say it right? I got to (laughs) know. I feel like if it's a double L in Spanish, you probably say ja, right? No, I, no, 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 no. La uh, Lorena. That's probably wrong, Girona. too. Girona. No, no, I'm, I'm probably fucking it up, too, but I'm fucking it up less. Like, the degree is, like, severely less. Like, you've ostracized our entire Spanish-speaking listener base. We're a bunch of La Gibronis, you could say. So so, so how the- was the this movie? <laughs> the, the Curse of La Lorena, Girona? Right? Yeah. Um, oh, it's a film about genocide. Um, Is it? <laughs> uh, there's like a genocide. You mean like the genocide of the Spanish language? Yeah. I, th- I feel like we just committed that. Um, we should be protested against for that. Um, there's a dictator and he's like holed up in his house after being uh, found guilty uh, for leading a genocide against a huge group of people in a mountainous region. Um, they... Uh, it's very scary for his family because they're just like the fallout of all his bad deeds. And, uh, they spend the whole film, like hold up in this house. Right. And there's all these people outside and they look up as though they are ghosts. And, uh, you can't really tell who's like a protester and who's part of the, um, you know, maybe like ghosts of the genocide, uh, stalking the family now. Um, it plays basically how you would expect, but I thought really nicely shot. Um, so many great shots with symmetry and playing into this old Spanish household and um, very, very smart film for Shutter. Uh, they had uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid last year, which I also loved. So uh, they have a they have a couple that are regionally specific, more Southern Americas uh, that I, I'd recommend both. Um, I liked it a lot. That's good to hear. Uh, it is kind of unfortunate coming in the shadow of another 2019 film uh, from the Conjuring universe, The Curse yeah. of La Llorona. Yeah, The which, Curse of La Llorona. Which uh, there is, I, I'm seeing a lot of mistaken association for. Uh, but <laughs> uh, it sounds like this one has actual merit to it. I had so much trouble describing it without spoiling the whole thing because it, it just leads to such a obvious or clear point. But of course, La Girona is like the the curse of the drowned woman, right? And uh, I think you could take away that that it's uh, a woman comes to help out this family who's uh, she becomes their maid and has an influence on the on the children. And um, I, I think that says enough without without saying what happens there. That's a you know definitely a good get for. Um... Shudder to Shutter. have, and, yeah. and like you mentioned with Tiger's Not Afraid as well, I think that's an interesting direction that they're continuing to foster and so mm-hmm. uh, hopefully uh, all of those horror enthusiasts out there who are not already subscribed will uh, take a look at their service. Uh, Blood Quantum too, I, I'd shout out for like a Native American horror. They, they have a lot of culturally specific horrors, which I feel like Netflix or anyone, they're, they're going for like the most base um, uh, most base idea of what a horror movie could be, while Shudder's still uh, prolifer proliferating a bit with some new ideas it is an interesting thing to point out that there is a lot of space horror on on netflix your your cloverfield stuff and such and all that and all the various other ones um well other than that i think we could get into docs already 
All right, docs sound good. Um, I guess I'm up first, yeah? Do I have to mm-hmm. be up first? <sighs> All right, I don't know if I want to talk about this one too much, but uh, I'm going okay. to. Uh, I think you cursed me last week with your discussion of uh, shitty docs because uh, I, I had a fairly unendurable experience watching my selection this week. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> do, do you what know, is it? Do you know about a film called uh, Sherman's March? No. Uh, probably not. Well, um... Sherman's March is a documentary from 1985 from uh, director Ross McElway. Uh, it, it won the best documentary at uh, Sundance uh, that year. And uh, is in the Library of Congress, I believe, as well. Like, fairly well, you know, noted. And I heard about it, and it sounded interesting. Uh, kind of this interesting fusion of, you know, personal, you know, kind of uh, uh, diary, you know, ad- you know, kind of exploration of of self through the like retracing of uh general william tecumseh sherman's march through uh georgia uh during the civil war which helped kind of bring it to a conclusion uh and the kind of lasting after effects that's the premise of the documentary anyway uh Mm -hmm. anything having to do with sherman is basically moot in the film because it's it's more like the film is the uh the director ross McElway starts out with this concept of tracing you know sherman and just kind of completely abandons it as he kind of chases these different female prospects around the south and uh just you know essentially keeps fucking up relationships and you know kind of whining to himself as to why he you know can't hold things or like abandoning these things here occasionally like you know pontificating on the horrors of nuclear holocaust you know at kind of random intervals uh, generally using his camera in a very, like, you know, uh, objectifying lens on, on women and photographing them in, you know, kind of uh, voyeuristic manners that's that's not always comfortable. And uh, it's it's really, like, scatterbrained and interesting and two and a half hours long. <laughs> and it's really torturous. Uh, I, I, I don't know that I got anything of value out of it. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, well, why I mean, is even... this? Why? <laughs> Go ahead. Even description. Even descriptions saying that he's just sidetracked by women and dreams of nuclear holocaust and Burt Reynolds. Yeah, yeah, Burt Reynolds uh, comes up in in the film. There's at one point where, <laughs> like, like, well, there's an early um, uh, one of his early female interests is an aspiring actress, and she's mm-hmm. like, um, you know, she she's trying to uh, audition for this Burt Reynolds film. And uh, so he he ends up seeing Burt Reynolds as, like, a rival for his affections with her. And then, like, later on in the film, he makes it something of of an obsession to, like, track down and confront Burt Reynolds uh, to kind of resolve his own issues, like, out of film shoot. And uh, there's one point where he runs into a really convincing Burt Reynolds lookalike who's trying to get a job, like, doubling for him. And, and and that was kind of humorous, I guess, because he he really did look like Burt Reynolds. But uh, th- and then later on, like he he does actually get to the Burt Reynolds shoot, but you know he's mostly <laughs> stopped from seeing Burt Reynolds, and he's being threatened by being thrown off the set, and you know like and and stuff for constantly filming. It's, it's again, it's it's really scatterbrained and like, uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> and not to say that there isn't value in this kind of documentary where it's this you know very intimate you know, uh, look at someone's life as they're kind of just recording, you know, their various thoughts and experiences in a very Mm. candid manner. But uh, it's just so, like, unfocused and (laughs) unclear. And again, I don't know why 
it's so long. It's just and it just feels like you took all this stuff and you stuck it together. I I don't know what you left out. I'm afraid to know what you left out if this is everything you decided to include. Yeah, I mean, if it it sounds like the director also got distracted by those things. It's yeah, more, it's more of a review of a film than a description. Of you one. you could try and draw a thread because like there, there's a very clear like he has this very clear. Uh, resemblance he feels with sherman and the kind of tragedy of his life you know doing all like like losing his sense of purpose after the war you know being a failure and everything else he does and you know uh <coughs> ross McElroy kind of seemingly have similarities in the sense that he can't quite figure out what he's trying to do you know what he wants in life he's you know unable to achieve you know what he's looking for but it's it's such a like stretch to really claim that that's a kind of thesis of the film. It really is like and and, and it just randomly will come back to and he, and he'll talk about Sherman's march a little bit sure. every now and then. So I I do feel like it's a little misleading in the advertising as well. Like you know I, I went in knowing that it wasn't exactly going to be about you know Sherman's march, yeah. but you know expecting there should be at least a little bit of a thread here. Like, obviously, you're going to use this as a launch pad to explore some other things, but no, it, it really is what it says on the box there. It's just he gets distracted <laughs> a bunch. And it sounds kind of good, though. I, no, I mean, no. It sounds interesting no. to me. Uh, I, I would not recommend you spend two and a half hours of your life seeking this out, personally. Uh, okay. Maybe you'll find something in it. People, again, like if, if you're interested in seeing some guy fumble about around the south with various you know like like trying to get into various relationships and constantly fucking them up because he keeps leaving to do other things and then like whining about it later because <laughs> the the woman got with another guy while he was gone for six months you know <laughs> the, 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 it's nah. there it's i'm not saying it's without value i'm saying i got zero value out of it <laughs> that makes sense um uh in only two and a half hours and uh, at this stage of my life, I, I only watch four-hour-long documentaries or longer. <laughs> um, yes, uh, you you watched a documentary as well. I think uh, it sounds like we both might be, just be bringing more documentaries in general, which is a good yeah, thing. Yeah. Uh, so so long as they're better than Sherman's March, I'm, I might go back to Hitler documentaries now after this because uh, <laughs> I was having some success that way. <laughs> uh, Wang Bing, uh, one of the most respected of Chinese directors. Um, Made this incredibly heavy movie, Till Madness to Us Part, which is about inmates in a mental health asylum in like a in southern China. Uh, they're mostly not there by choice. Um, either they went out and politically protested, or they had mental issues. Um, either way, uh, some of them are violent offenders. Either way, they were all locked in together in this one floor, which is like a big rectangle suspended in there. Um, and Wang Bing spends at least the first three hours uh, with them, just kind of following them, seeing what they do. It begins, I think, it has to begin this way, with them taking care of each other. Uh, they're washing each other's feet, and uh, you could tell that they're looking out for each other, that they've made a familiar space out of the worst situation of their lives. Um, most of them will probably stay in there. Uh, they, there doesn't seem to be a good avenue for getting out. Um, I didn't know for how long, if the documentary was working for me, but there's no way that I could possibly have turned it off. Um, it ended up being one of the best I've ever seen. Uh, uh, just like the impact and how I've carried it with me. Uh, I was just like shaken to my core, not knowing how these people could operate this way. Um, and they're treated 
like less than pets at a zoo, right? Like uh, that there's very little humanity uh, behind their cages and their, or their, you know, suspended cage in the air. Uh, there's, you know, they're like a, they have to, they stand on their bed to pee and they pee against the wall or, or they like shit in the corner in a bucket. I mean, it's not, it's not, there's no glamour there. Um, Sounds very pleasant. <laughs> yeah. It's such a difficult scenario and I respect directors who put themselves in, very compromising situations to to get the film like uh one of them wants to just run around the floor and i think my favorite moment wang bing just follows him and runs with his camera you know he he plays into the madness of it all i mean he lets them exhibit their madness without correcting or helping them i feel like a lesser director would reach out and you know and and probably compromise themselves in this situation somehow um, and he finds a way never to be compromised, which is really amazing. Then beyond that, there's a there's a point where one guy leaves, and I realize what the film was actually doing to my mind. I realized that I was becoming institutionalized. I realized that I couldn't put the film away because it had set something in my mind where I, I felt like I was imprisoned with it. Uh, I had gone so much at the film's pace that I was shocked, and I felt unpleasant once it took me out of the situation which is how the guy felt. Um, it's so good at directing audience feelings through these people that are imprisoned. And in you know, uh, sometimes in these worst situations, you find the best humanity. So uh, something like Active Killing, already one of my favorite docs, uh, something really treacherous like this or uh, Sound of Silence or something like that, those are, or Herzog, that's really what I'm after. And it, it inspires me and makes me realize why I'm doing this. So, uh Forthcoming, maybe I'll watch the nine-hour documentary. Nine-hour. What's, what's yeah. the name of that one? West of the Tracks, West which is a tracks. it's a three-part project, so I could split it up into three days or so. And uh, yeah, th- those always sound more daunting than you know they seem yeah. to when, when we phrase them like that. Like uh, you know, I mean, how many times, how many ventures have I set out watching you know thirteen-part Ken Burns series? <laughs> Yeah. You know, like like if it's we talked so about bad. yeah, if we talked about them in the thousand hour or whatever mark, it's probably not that much. I'm I'm exaggerating, but <laughs> yeah, but what is like, time? You spend like twelve hours with the Ken Burns, and you split it up over a week. It's not so bad. Uh, not all of these are meant to be watched at once, but I think this four hour one probably should be a, a block of a day. Um, I I don't see any way to step away from it. I feel like it would betray kind of the purpose of the documentary. Yeah. Uh, and, and it sounds quite fascinating as well. Again, any kind of examination of uh, yeah. institutionalization and uh, the kind of horror on the the mind it does there, and particularly like very like like terrible ones, you know, uh, I think is a, always a, a prescient subject matter. Yeah, I mean, I've been to a lot of rehabs. I know what it feels like to kind of come back to society and feel like uh, maybe I was better off in a place where I had limited control, right? Like I. I understood that, like, deep in addiction, how dangerous it was for me to be out. Uh, so I, I feel that for these guys, too. That I don't know if there's a better place, but this is definitely not a good place. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I guess we uh be a good time to take a break, and maybe we'll come back to a better place then with our uh, feature film discussion. Hell yeah. Drum boogie, drum boogie. Okay. It really is a killer. Drum boogie, drum boogie. The drum boogie boogie. Okay. The rhythm motor. 
send you. Boogie. It's really gonna send you drum boogie, drum boogie. Boogie. It really is killer. Drum boogie, drum boogie. The drum boogie woogie. You hear the piano rompin'. So, uh, let's go back, uh, back, back. So, Calvin, what prompted you to watch this movie? Um, as a man of the 1940s, uh, <laughs> I, I firmly believe I should get to all of the classic cinema. I'm, I'm actually jumping into a lot of 40s this year. Uh, yeah, clearly, as, as you can see by our last several podcast episodes, we can't seem to get away from the 40s. As you could tell by my fedora. <laughs> um, <laughs> that too. I, I do... I am very attracted to this kind of style of film, and uh, Howard Hawks especially I want to get through more of this year. So, uh, it, Plus, you mentioned it on the podcast. It's your first of last year, so uh, you're my yeah. co-host. I should probably see the things you like most. Speaking of uh, Howard Hawks, do you want to get out of your way, uh, out of the way that your grievances with his, his other comedy? <laughs> <laughs> Which one? Oh, you you know the one the 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 greatest screwball comedy ever made as as it is so proclaimed. Uh, uh, what's up, Doc? I don't think Hawks directed that. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, no, he didn't. Bringing no, up but, baby, uh, you mean? My God, yes, I already yeah, forgot it. It's not been a week. <laughs> this is what we mean uh, about embargoes. Don't make us wait. <laughs> um, bringing up baby, I I was horrified that it's considered the best screwball comedy because. I mean, it's so insistent on itself and its comedy that, uh, I mean, there there are laughs in it. I mean, it is Hepburn and Grant. There's there's things to like I, about I, it. Uh, it's not bad. The, the bit, of course, where 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 they have like the uh, the clothing malfunction at the party, I think, yeah. is a great bit. And uh, I think I think the beginning is largely good. But uh, my my first impression of it very much aligned with yours, where I'm like, this is asinine this is uh, overstimulating this is far too much and aggressive and everyone sucks <laughs> there's no yeah, there's no I, I don't like character. anyone there. everyone is loony <laughs> i could see some through lines that you had to make this movie to get to what's up doc or something better later on um i just don't think this is the one i i'm ashamed that screwball fans think so it turns out that uh, maybe people were right in 1938 because uh, it bombed horribly, uh, and it, and it really kind of sealed the deal on, uh, you know, Catherine Hepburn not being a box office draw until 1940 came and uh, the Philadelphia story revived her career. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think largely we'll we'll uh, be in that camp. So for those of you who listened to our His Girl Friday or our uh, Red River episodes, and now this new one talking about Hawks, uh, don't look forward to a bringing a baby episode. It's not going to happen. No, I, I would never want a podcast. About it. <laughs> it it was so stressful too. It was a long day already, and I was kind of just stressed by the whole event. I, I never want to see it again. I. I'm not going to ever bring up my bringing up baby score because I'll never revisit it. I, I like, I dislike it that much. I just don't care. I think that's fair. I think that's okay. fair. And, and now that we've effectively alienated all of the Howard Hawks fans, <laughs> yeah, right. let's let's talk about Ball of Fire. <laughs> Ball of Fire, Ball of, an astounding classic. Ball of Fire, uh, I believe, gave you the absolute opposite reaction there, and that you were oh, yeah. immediately entranced by it, as was I when I watched it last year. For the first time, I watched it. I think I mentioned this on the uh, 
uh, podcast uh, on the end of the year one, whatever it was. Uh, I watched it three times last year. <laughs> oh, uh, wow. Yeah, uh, 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 which is uh, a lot for, for any film in one in a given year, let alone one I watched for the first time that year. <laughs> I think we're pretty on the same page where I I watched it. I was so entertained by everything, and I got through the end. I was like, I loved every part of that movie. Where's the Blu-ray? Yeah, and, and uh, there is no Blu-ray. There's no Blu-ray release for this movie, uh, sadly. There, there There is a brand new DVD release for some reason. <laughs> Uh, Warner Archive put out a brand spanking new DVD release in January. Uh, I, th- there's rumors that they're gonna stop operating soon. I've, I haven't found any yeah. kind of confirmation on it, which would be devastating. It would. Uh, but if if they are in fact continuing, or if they are going to go offline, please at least put out Ball of Fire first. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe it's not the worst if someone else could obtain this, but I just feel like it would be so far down the list, and it shouldn't be. This is a enduring classic with and and uh, it's fairly recognized as a classic yeah. it's not like this is an unpopular film like this is fairly well known it's not quite it's just not up to the reputation that it deserves i think i i mean i agree because its reputation should be best film ever <laughs> maybe <laughs> in some ways i know it's not very controversial, but it came out around the same time as Citizen K, and I enjoy watching this more. Well, I mean, one of the think notable things we'll get to as well is, um, you know, Toland. Sh- yeah, Toland, Toland, Toland on this film, it and it and it, it definitely is a Toland film. You could see it in the cinematography, a lot of the same techniques utilized in Kane and such. But uh, I mean, obviously, it's more entertaining than Kane because it's you know it's a comedy. It's you know th- yeah. those are always and if the if it's a good comedy or even a great comedy like this, then, you know, the entertainment factor is already through the roof. I wouldn't say I'm so much entertained by Kane, just, like, deeply admiring and amused by uh, it. I mean, you know. we can go back to the Kane episode and talk about it, but Kane is a very funny and, you know, humorous yeah. film with full of charm and everything. I would not say it's it's not entertaining. I think it is very entertaining, but it's not a comedy like this is. And it's not written by Billy Wilder, and so that automatically gives it even more points. <laughs> I think that's the the prestigious part of it that Wilder and Hawks it's, it's just such a good combo. For me, like maybe it's also just inherent bias, but I almost feel like the Wilder of it all eclipses the Hawks aspect. Like I agree. It, to me it feels more like a Billy Wilder film just because yeah. that script is so outstanding and it and it really, you know, comes out and grabs your attention that the the sure direction of Hawks and his capability with the actors, it's all there, but it also feels, you know, very very ordinary in comparison. It's a total precursor and necessary film to get to some like it hot or something in like eight years on. I mean, there's, you need this film to exist. So in some way it's, it it aligns much more with what Billy Wilder would go do than what Hawks would do after. Right. Well, it's got all the, the, the signatures of it. Like one of the big things that's so great about it is the structure of the script and the very many setups and payoffs that occur throughout it. Even something as simple as them opening the, the, the light on the ceiling that's something that is an action yeah. that takes place that pays off in the climax of the film which is is very very wilder-esque it's you know that it happens in you know all of his great films is as there's so much you know important plot things that are set up and then you know come back it had as a writer as well i feel like it had to be written by a real wordsmith and someone that's like deeply entrenched in english language not just as it's written but um as as they say in the film as it's spoken as as you hear it somewhere else in life like uh, wilder of course such a great ear for dialogue that um 
just this whole conception of a film based on the expanding vernacular based on slang uh, i was already so deeply entrenched in it and, and in love with every part of it that I, I, it couldn't do very much to dissuade me and it, it didn't do anything well, that's the real genius of the film, isn't it? It's a film that's about language and the importance of language and the different sex of uh, sex of language that you have mm. through the different you know various communities and how things grow. And coming from someone whose first language isn't English, you know, someone who had to learn it, and coming through the process of all that and you know the various different ways. Like I, th- I think as a secondary language, you you have a greater appreciation for some of the more nuances of how uh, the structure of language and how certain things you know come together and i think that really comes through in the script and it's and it's so genius just that that conceit coming up there that you know it's that the film is about these eight professors who (laughs) are working on an extensive encyclopedia of knowledge and the the professor played by gary uh, cooper professor potts Mm -hmm. um he is he's the linguistics of professor here's the english teacher and so uh and and, and one of the great things is that the, the, he set out with this idea that they're all on the s part like it doesn't yeah. make a, it doesn't make a lot of sense for like in terms of the in how you would actually go about an encyclopedia like no it doesn't like they they're they're talking about samba because it's s as opposed to covering that under d for dance yeah <laughs> but like this more specific again like like what all is given how much in this encyclopedia is very arbitrary which is humorous in and of itself uh, so slang is is what he is up to here, and these these guys have been so cooped up for years <laughs> that they're just entirely out of touch with everything that's happened in the world, and they're working off of outdated texts. So when this this garbage man comes in uh, and to ask them for some help with a, a radio contest on various trivia's, and he's speaking all of this modern jive and <laughs> you know v- vernacular, different language, and they have no idea what the fuck he's saying. Uh, Gary Cooper's just like, oh my god, I'm I'm an idiot. I've completely failed. I have to go out into the world and learn all of this modern language because, of course, at this point with the the rise of of jive and the various you know different cultures that were popping up, like just just uh, the, all these different you know jargons and languages were you know going all off the hook here, <laughs> and and, and yeah. of course they they have this very much more Victorian sensibilities to them all, so they're all <laughs> very like buttoned up, and they're like very like confused by these the, the common words as soon as they came on screen i said oh um cooper and the seven dwarfs i mean i the illusion is so strong there well it's it's very literal too it's the they acknowledge act, that in the film it's yeah. the, the actual inspiration that that they had there is that these guys are all kind of based off of the idea of the seven dwarfs which was of course the you know very big disney film you know boom so, came out and made a big I think, impact i think importantly rather than characterizing them as their um you know, their physical attributes, either grumpy or they're happy. More importantly, it gives them, as encyclopedias, it gives them a section of the encyclopedia. So uh, their their profession and their what they're professorial about is, you know, their their section of interest. Yeah. <laughs> I think that defines them in some really interesting ways. Oh, and, and the way they establish the, the characters that way with the, the seven professors is really great. They have that opening sequence where they're walking through the park and, you know, it's it's not done just in an A, <laughs> oh, I'm the professor of history or whatever. Right. Like, you know, it's it's kind of done in character as a retort. Like, one of them is, you know, going off about, like, the various, you know, f- uh, flora around or whatnot. And, you know, one of them's like, you know, careful, don't keep going or otherwise I'll talk about all the tributaries of the Amazon <laughs> at you. You know, and he uses it as kind of like a, a, a jibe back at him so 
Yeah, with the professors, in terms of their characters as well, I think that's one of the, the strongest assets of the film is how well defined they are. We're you know the not not just in terms of how they each have these distinct personalities and the way they're introduced, but the actual embodiment by their actors as well. Uh, two two stand out in particular uh, being Professor Oddly, of course, and uh, Professor uh, Gurkakov, who sometimes mm. they call Professor Gherkin. Uh, <laughs> and and they're they're just so delightful. They're they're so humorous and interesting. Particularly, I think oddly in, in his very eccentricity, the way he has of of speaking. <laughs> and, he, and he ends up being a very important character in the film too. Yeah, yeah. They're they're very peculiar in that they're well defined, despite you know not all having large parts. A couple of them do. Yeah, there's a few who faded in the background, but they all have significant lines throughout. But I would definitely say that Oddly and Gurkakov are are the kind of central two of of the mm-hmm. the seven there, and um, you know, and they have some very significant, particularly like I said with Oddly, he's got that very great moment later on uh, where he kind of uh, pours his heart out about his uh, uh, deceased wife uh, in a very <laughs> important sequence, which again is is another key building block into you know laying things out again I, I just i love the structure of the story because of how it builds to everything like every everything that happens is because of a previous action instigating it going forward like again even even the idea that he has a wife is set up in the beginning of the film so that when it comes up again later it's you know it's information that we already have i, I think it might be important that that hawks is directing because it's so multifaceted and he has such versatility with genre that um he's able to handle very well like the noir gangster blend with um with this comedy with this slapstick yeah as well i I think what's important to highlight is that and perhaps why we don't immediately give hawks as much credit is because hawks's directing style is a lot more invisible he's not as Mm -hmm. flashy what he's very good at is he's very good at handling actors and dialogue in particular and staging sequences like uh i i definitely caught uh, and it also helps to have toland cinematography who's so fantastic at creating you know images that have a lot going on in the foreground and background because there's like the the sequence in which you know the the professors are all kind of peeking around the corner between the conversation between uh, Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck when they first meet in, in the house and you see them in the backgrounds there just slightly out of focus kind of like peering around the the staircases there and seeing what's going on I mean we haven't even quite got to Stanwyck but, yeah um, yeah we definitely have like a writer director cinematographer dream team here that that works it, it's so fundamentally sound yeah um, it, it's it's just like wow you know like you just hear even one of those names and you'd be already interested but to hear all of them together that seems like insane yeah and and it works i mean it is what you want that to be it's it's never like too many cooks in the kitchen it, it's like it all functions together yeah and and i i would say this is also not only a key step in terms of wilder's career of getting to something like some like it hot but literally this was a key stepping stone into getting to being a director in general this is the last sure. screenplay he wrote before he became a director he was on set for ball of fire watching and learning from hawks's direction and i think you see a lot of that influence then come uh, yeah on on wilder style because again wilder's not a very visually flashy director it's it's all about bringing the script you know to to the screen there in the most succinct you know and professional form you can um and i feel like gary cooper and stan wick as well just such a, a good pairing where they have uh, so much natural chemistry but um also very funny together 
Absolutely. That's that's one thing that last, last year I learned a lot is that Gary Cooper is great in comedies. <laughs> and it's not we don't usually think of Gary Cooper as a comedian. We think about him I think more so as a western star when we talk about him, but uh in the, in the 30s and 40s he did a series of really great comedies and I think this is probably the the best of them where he so fully embodies this character in, in, in a believable It's such a manner. great role for him. Um you you really want to believe him. We haven't really gotten to like how he enters with Stan Wake into the movie. It's yeah, it's yeah. Let's talk too. more about the premise because there's a yeah. lot. Like it's a lot of movie. One thing is that I'm, I'm always surprised because it's about two hours and it doesn't feel like a two hour movie. No, it flies but, by. But uh, yeah, so the premise, of course, picking up where we left off, where Cooper is going around learning about the different slang of the day and stuff. He ends up in a nightclub where he is introduced to the performer uh, Sugar Puss O'Shea, which is a great name. Fantastic name in name. itself, a lot of uh, a lot of new vernacular there for him. So uh, I like that about her, too. She comes on with this performance of a fantastic uh, jazzy number called Drum Boogie, and uh, he, he, is, he is entranced by her and her slick talking ways. And she really does have this, you know, very, you know, kind of, uh, you know, like, like fast paced, you know, hoxie and, you know, way of, you know, full of, you know, jargony dialogue and stuff. And it's, it's very funny. And he's just so fascinated by it, you know, where, where she's like, you know, all right, you know, put, put on the, you know, put, put in your clutch. I think it's something she said one time. He's like, oh, yes, that's, that's brilliant. <laughs> and he wants her to come like to, so he can study her for, for the vernacular, for the language here of it. And at first she's entirely dismissive as you would be if someone, you know, like Gary oh, Cooper yeah. came knocking on your door. <laughs> but when uh, she is being subpoenaed, uh, as the gangsters put it, um, for for her, uh, you know, the, hey, this if your gangster... name's uh, if your name's Pastrami, how else you gonna pronounce that? <laughs> okay. I'll talk about him as well because Dan Durea is, is so good in this movie. He's so funny. He's the perfect embodiment of this kind of cheesy Italian gangster. But yeah, yeah. they um, you know, they they got to put her into hiding because they're they're trying to subpoena her uh, about uh, her, her her mobster boyfriend. Um, and she just Ooh, talks uh, and jive too. I mean, it's just yeah, like a, Joe, it's a. What's the guy's name? Oh, and, and, and Joe Lilac is the gangster's name. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's played by uh, Dana Andrews, who's also very good in it. Uh, or as they uh, continue to call him, very early for the forties, Daddy. Um, you get a lot of Daddy <laughs> language in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so. Uh, in order to hide out, she shows up at the uh, the professor's abode and uh, kind of stays out there where the the cops won't be looking for her. And she hangs out there for a few days, and that's how they get all uh, mixed up together. It's re- it's really a good construction too, because they're all so lonely, and of course they can't really have women on site at their encyclopedia building. <laughs> and, uh, they have the the doting old old lady that's there, but. Uh, the- they really don't have any contact, so they're yeah, Ms. they're all so impressed. Ms. Bragg. Oh my yeah. god, how is it that he, that he puts it, that Gary Cooper describes her in this, this perfect way? He calls her, like, singularly uninspiring underpinnings of <laughs> Mrs. Bragg, is what, is what he says about her. And, and it's so eviscerating. That's such a great line. <laughs> and you see how easy it would be for her to manipulate the situation. And it, it becomes an interesting romance anyway, even though she's playing them. And and it's a very well structured romance again, like it's very very well paced out. 
uh, I actually looked like at the at the timestamp at when they actually like seal that moment together after the mm-hmm. the yum yum bit, uh, where where it's it's really like that clear act break. That's exactly halfway through the movie, which is perfect. And 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 I was kind of like gobsmacked by how well centered that is in the film. So yeah, the the first half of the film is that entire build up, and it's mostly contained to the the house there, in which all the events are going on. You've got the the first the you know the introduction of them you know all together in the room to kind of you know meet up where where she's like insisting on staying there and stuff you got the subsequent sequences where she uh you know she's interacting with the uh you know professors and stuff where she's where they're talking and having their meeting about you know lingo they have the whole breakdown of corny and what corn means which is a great <laughs> sequence yeah. and all the different like you know, uh, tributaries of that. And then of course she gets swept in to do the Samba with the, the other guys there. And it's just like, it's derailing their, their plans. Cause, Oh, that's, that's another plot detail that, uh, we kind of over, skipped over here is that they're, they're kind of on a crunch because the, their funding is being threatened to be pulled from, uh, the, the, um, benefactor who is the daughter of uh, a man who had a great you know allowance in this will and he wanted this to be done kind of in his memory mostly out of spite because he invented the electric <laughs> toaster and he wasn't mentioned in any encyclopedias right and so he wanted to make his own which which is humorous in and of itself and that's a great introduction as well to cooper's awkwardness because the the main woman is kind of very flirty with him and he's and he, you know he uses that charm like as much of his charm as he's able to to kind of like give him some extra time but like he, he's very clearly uncomfortable with it and it sets up really well for then his later interactions with uh sugar puss i think we're breezing right past like the sexuality of the movie and how uh barbara stanwick just like, exudes that in her part like the yum yum part is very interesting because as Andrew Sarris would say about these movies, it's a sex comedy without the sex. That the sex is there in, in so many kind of explicit terms. They even like mention it. Um, you know, the like like they they use not not only in a uh, in the kind of jargony sense that they talk about sex, but even the bit the moment where it comes back to the S language, where one of the professors right. like that. That's a funny bit. Is that uh, the. Um, you know, Mrs. Bragg is going through the papers and she turns it over under his desk because it's, you know, he's writing about sex. <laughs> there's a great crack from one of them where, where they're like, you know, he, he needs to uh, investigate more. He's like, oh, maybe I need more hands-on experience with my subject too. <laughs> but yeah, sex is absolutely, like with so many of these uh, 1940 films, even under the, uh, you know, the the crushing censors of the, the Hayes office is that they're getting so much there through under the radar the illicitness of it the suggestive quality of sex it defines so many of these films from this period and maybe nobody better than barbara stanwyck was like this you know radiating symbol of sexuality in all her films i think we covered it a little bit in a double indemnity of course and how stunning she is there when she like takes off on like the language and the linguistics and at some point you realize like what slang is she's just inventing some of it to keep herself around right like like the yum yum or whatever that she's making up things that that might not necessarily be slang words so they keep her in the building she's biding her time well cuz there's that that's what that great culmination of that sequence is about the halfway point is that when when it comes very clear to Gary Cooper's character that uh they've been entirely derailed uh by by this woman coming into their midst and sucking up all of their time and attention he has to make the hard decision to banish her uh, effectively, uh, even against his own desires, which he states uh, very explicitly. And mm-hmm. so then she she turns it around on him, and that's where you get the great 
great yum 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 moment where you know she she confesses her love for him at that point which is again just kind of a ruse to stay in while she still has to hide out from the police but it's enough to to keep her in you know and and it, it prompts him to propose to her in the very next scene it's one of the great Tolan moments too where she's going against the window and she just oh, yeah. how it would be if you're looking at you know how it would be if he was looking at her at the window like when he fell in love with her and uh, then, then she also stands on the books. Of course, they're making encyclopedias, so that's important. Uh, also, their height difference, but um, <laughs> it, it's just such a nice moment. The yum yum thing is really like a heart of the film. Yeah, no, I think that's where the the romance of it really starts to take hold, where you're in the the position of of Gary Cooper and you're buying into the romance. Because I think that's the the interesting thing is that it kind of goes back and forth because it's very clear in that sequence that she she doesn't actually love Gary Cooper at this moment. This is a ruse so that she can stay around. Mm-hmm. But she has an affection for all of these guys. She's very yeah. charmed by all of them. She's taken in, you know, she's very genuinely here to help them with their various interests in their investigation. And and you see how that is the kernel of the affection that she's developing for them as it goes on uh, as, as she starts to like genuinely fall in love with their sincerity. Um, you know, and, and then she sees the kind of the duplicity of, of Joe Lilac because he sends yeah. like initially he sends the engagement ring only because, uh, you know, that's a loophole for him to get out of her testifying against her because, you know, in the mm-hmm. court of law, the, the wife can't be held to testify against her, her husband. So, you know, she, while she is appreciative of it and she gets this giant diamond ring from him. But you know, she she's still like you know, oh yeah, but it you know came at the you know into the police essentially first. <laughs> he couldn't pop it himself. She's so used to being used as an object and uh, of desire, but then uh, in the same way, she's objectified for study. But in a you know, she's more connected to that uh, path. I think eventually. They have a genuine fascination with her as a as a person, as they express. It's not just as a subject. Very very clearly, again, like Cooper's uh, you know candid expression of his affection for her, and the way he has to you know blot the back of his neck from from the sweat, yeah. and you know how he, he's he's catching her eye, or when, you know when the sun you know makes her hair glow or whatever. Like it's all very sincere and believable, and he's just such a lovable little like like <laughs> I, uh, his his sincerity and his innocence comes through he's such a like a kind of innocent seeming character of course even those affectations are going to pay off like when she blots her own neck and yeah it's so it's so smart about that i mean that's a wilder touch cooper i think in particular is especially uh, i think fantastic in this film because you, you would usually find it really hard to buy him as a as a professor of anything <laughs> yeah. because of his like kind of exceeding simplicity like he's often accused of being kind of yeah He's often accused of being a kind of wooden actor. Not not unfairly. He is, you know, like like a very kind of simple approach to to acting. But it's so well suited in this particular case. He's able to like, and and the dialogue gives him so much to go off of. And again, that's another important thing that you see in Hawks' direction is that he pulls a great performance out of Cooper in what could be really like just you know perfunctory. When he when it's getting set up, you're like, I, I could never see Gary Cooper this way, but then he's just the perfect fit for that role. 
Yeah, and again, the chemistry between him and Barbara Stamick is, is stellar. I think she also pulls a lot out of him because she just brings so much energy and enthusiasm to the role and the way that she looks at him. Like, like I think that's the other thing is that, you know, when you're paired with Barbara Stanwyck, I think you can't help but emote, you know, grandiose, you know, affection and yeah. love. Like, you know, come on. <laughs> she brings out the best of every set she's on. It's incredible she didn't win any Academy Awards, I believe. That's... Yeah, I, this wasn't nominated for too much. But, but yeah, you mean like in general? I don't think she was actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, she's left a great impression on us that's left, that's lasting, and we keep coming back to her. So something about her performances work, but were they too racy at the time? Uh, I don't know. I think they're just one of those things where you didn't recognize, you know, like a lot, like certain films went under the radar. She was nominated for this and Double Indemnity, at least. So it's not like they weren't aware. I guess there were just like other things. I don't know. You know, the Academy is often wrong. More, more especially often than about right. comedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, nominated at least to some recognition. But yeah, yeah, it's God. Yeah, we stand Stanwick so hard here at the Twin Geeks. Yeah, we would definitely give her a word. <laughs> there's a, there's just a smoothness to everything too. It, it works so well. There was never any point where I was bored by it. I mean, it, it paces it well, um, from introducing her to her stay at the house to their little road trip, and then the you know the climax there. Yeah, what what I thought was interesting thing, what I always think is it is that you really could have capped this film off at the end of the road trip there. Like you could have. You yeah. You, you, what what could have happened is that so they they go off to get married, which is just again like a ruse set up by Joe Lilac to get them to New Jersey where he's at, so that they can you know whisk away with Stan, we can get married, that he can get married with her there. So they're under the assumption that, you know, uh, Gary Cooper is going to get married to Barbara Stanwyck. But then that's where the whole confrontation kind of comes out and the truth is exposed after, uh, you know, and, and that's where those great, really moving sequences take place. There's the, you know, the they, they have their bachelor party where um, Professor Audley talks about uh, his wife and they sing the, the Genevieve song, which I think is a very moving moment. You know, it, it kind of melts my heart. And then you have uh, Gary Cooper mistakenly going to the wrong cabin where Barbara Stanwyck is, and you've got the brilliant lighting, the the, the you know shadowy lighting from Toland in that scene where he is also pouring his heart out about uh, you know Sugar Puss, and she's there in the dark, you know, and they uh, you know they cleverly, I don't know if it's the perfect execution, but I love the idea of it that they've you know painted her face you know black as well to hide within the shadows, so just her her eyes really stand out in the sequence building up to that scene then when you have the gangsters come in and bust things up and expose the truth what you could have done and still had a very satisfying conclusion is you could have just had you know barbara samick essentially say no have them fight off the gangsters and you know call it a happy ending but that's not yeah. what happens no it goes on for like another 20 minutes and the the conclusion thereafter is that you know they they go back to the house they're resigned frustrated that they let themselves get taken advantage like this ready to go back to their work when they're ambushed again by the gangsters because barbara stanwick was so moved by by gary cooper's sincerity and really has truly fallen in love with him now that she refuses to marry joe lilac and so they have to hold them there by gunpoint uh you know as, as kind of hostages so that she will and that's where I think you get the the really the most inspired aspect of the film and the climax and and really it, it brings the thesis of the story 
to a head in which is the 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 competition of language here it's the literal conclusion of the film it's how they solve things they have to use their own you know uh uh professorly jar- jargon to outwit the gangsters yeah i mean it's not so much about like the corny thing where they're doing the thing with the light to drop the the thing on him right it's more that about the conversation they're having and how they use language combatively to deceive them right they're using them as as code. These ideas, these uh, historical aspects, the sort of Damocles, Archimedes, you know, mirror and such, as a manner of communicating with one another of how to orchestrate the overcoming of the gangsters in a way that they have no idea. The gangsters who are totally uneducated on these subject matters are entirely, you know, clueless to what's going on. And I think, again, like what it does is that it emphasizes the importance of like singular intelligence of these subjects that they have a specialty in and how they can be utilized in you know special ways that that do show you know an overcoming of other flaws and stuff so in the beginning where they are you know struggling they have this huge debilitating issue in their encyclopedia because they are entirely bereft of intelligence on you know modern lingo modern slang they end up utilizing their own specialties to combat that. You know, they overcome mm-hmm. that. They have their own version of slang in which they use to ultimately succeed in their in their ventures. Like, it, it's well understood with the characters. It does get payoffs for everything that they built up to. Um, yeah, each of the characters are contributing with their fields of interest to that specific conclusion. Like, you know, the, the history professor is the one who proposes the, the Archimedes aspect, you know? And, and having to come in and, and use the microscope as a, you know, a concentration of flame in order to knock the painting down onto uh, Dan Durea's head. Which, again, he's, he's great, and that's where he gets to ham it up the whole time. Dan Durea, he's so great as this, like, exaggerated Italian stereotype of a gangster. And, God, I, I love seeing him in supporting roles pop up. I've actually sought out films just because he's in them, because I, I love him. And he, and he stands out as such a distinct personality. Yeah, I think uh, it's such a great ensemble, too. Like, I was just doing awards, so I think about things like that. Like, a very specific category where uh, everyone's so great, and they culminate into, like, a large performance. It all makes sense together. Mm -hmm. And and then even they got people come around, like, that's where the garbage man comes back in from the beginning, and and he plays a role in helping things come along to the conclusion. But, yeah, it's just such a... I. Every time I watch the film, I just find new things to appreciate. I'm finding more things in the script that are being set up and, and brought back again in great mm-hmm. ways. And again, it's just so cleverly worded. But m- most important of all is that I'm in it with the characters and the romance aspect. I buy that so 100% completely, and I bowl over by it, and I'm moved in ways that, you know, th- this is what I think of when I think of these, you know, sweeping romantic you know, Hollywood, you know, uh, films like this. This is the kind of thing I'm thinking about. I, I, I don't get affection like this unless it's, you know, like a, a Fred Astaire musical or something, you know, comparatively. <laughs> okay, okay, so let me tell you about A Song is Born, then. You can just attach this part to what I said there because it was, it was enthusiastic and great. So, A Song is Born was made in 1948. 
basically the same exact script as Ball of Fire, just with one semi-significant change. Instead of professors of encyclopedia, they're professors of music, and the thing they're missing in their discussion is jazz, you know, which makes sense. It's, a, it's like a logical deviation to think. I'm like, all right, that's an interesting way to twist the material and make it work. It stars uh, Danny Kaye and Virginia Mayo in it instead, which uh, is definitely a downgrade in talent, but, you know, there's, there's some promise there. Louis Armstrong's in it, and he's pretty cool. Uh, it's directed by Howard Hawks. It's also shot by Greg Toland. But it sucks. It's it's terrible <laughs> because it's almost exactly the same script, the same direction. It's so lazily done because like Howard Hawks was just like pushed to do it. And and it's uh it's it's so uninspired and, and like entirely like uh Why did it happen? Why? Uh because the student the studio wanted to do it. They wanted to recycle the material, and they shoved a bunch of money at Howard Hawks and pressured him to do it, and so he did it. <laughs> it's weird to remake your own movie. It is. It's, again, and it's so weird because there's literally, like, some shots that are, like, exactly the same, but it's just, it, like, it's in color, and I'm like... And lines. Like, the thing is that, like, a lot of the lines are the same, but they've cut out some of the context to them. Like, so when they're talking about, like, like all of the wordplay, it doesn't make sense for the premise anymore, because they've changed the premise. And it's, it's so baffling. Like, it's it's sort of alright to watch still, because, like, Louis Armstrong has bits in it, and he's really entertaining and, you know, like, magnetic, as to be expected. Uh, and the script is still the Billy Wilder script, so it's, it's good, but it's like it's entirely absent of the the charm and the you know the special sense that you get by bringing all this together. Danny Kay is like not having any of it. He refused to sing any songs for the movie, so it's not even a musical like it was intended to be. <laughs> uh, and, and Virginia Mayo is just not Barbara Stanwyck uh, as much as she tries. I guess that prevents at least a need to remake this movie. Uh, hopefully, someone learned from it and didn't do that. I, I and I feel bad for anyone who has seen a song is born but who has not seen Ball of Fire, which which I have encountered. It would be an awful order to go in. It would be awful because like I said, the script is almost exactly the same in some stretches. So you're gonna feel like you're watching something derivative by going back to Ball of Fire when it's not and it's and it's terrible because like that's a feeling you can't erase. That's something you don't have any control over. <laughs> Yeah, that, that wouldn't make sense to, to go back to it after. You'd already have that inferior experience clinging to you, I feel like. Yeah, and you would just be reminded of it while watching Ball of Fire, no matter how much distance you got. So definitely, please, please, people, watch Ball of Fire. Don't even bother with Song is Born. I don't think it's even that worth it. And I, I generally like Danny Kaye. I think he's fine. But, like, it's not it's not really worth seeking no. out for that. <laughs> it's such a specific thing. It's it's hard to imagine for me what it, what that would be like. I almost have to see it eventually. Maybe, but at least you've seen Ball of Fire, so like you'll be able to appreciate it as a derivative piece. Like I, I saw it out because I'm like, oh, this looks kind of middling, but you know, I like the, you know, the main film, so I'm kind of interested to see what this was. And I was shocked. Oh, I was no. shocked by how exactly the same it is, but entirely like missing all of its charm. Like it was, it was a shockingly amateur production. <laughs> There's just very little cynicism in ball of fire i mean compared to like a relative noir of the same time there's there's so much heart just redoing any part of it wouldn't make sense to me very yeah very interesting that you mentioned that as well because wilder is like the king of cynicism you know all all of his films some of his best films are full of 
I just don't find it that cynical. This one, it's not. It's 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 very sweet. It believes its romance entirely, and you know, I think it's in, entirely genuine in that. And I think you'd have to bring that. I wonder if if Wilder directed it, if that would come across the same way. So again, I think you know, again, as much as we want to talk about and praise the talents of Wilder in this case, uh, Hawks is an instrumental tool in you know rendering it as it is. At least maybe like neutering some of the cynicism and like bringing it directly to screen as it is on the script. Uh, maybe maybe Wilder would have taken it somewhere else. So we yeah. can't know. I'm I'm so I'm so grateful to have it as it is. It's such a again like a a perfectly charming film, very clever, and so well structured and satisfying to watch. You know, I just I, I and again like the biggest thing is that the. The romance and the comedy and the story, everything works together in such a complete manner as to entrance me every time. We just need someone to put it on Blu-ray. I think that's our main petition here. Uh, Everything is great. Everything is great except the absence of a Blu-ray. Yep, I I agree entirely. We need more distribution for it. Uh, But I'm so glad that you got to see it. well, you know, I just love like it first experience with a film where it charms you so immediately, and it's something that we both connected on. Uh, and more than anything, this podcast is really about like our friendship and uh, understanding films together. So when we both connect on the same level with like a beautiful old movie, why not cover that? Absolutely, I was I was so enthusiastic when I saw your you know love for it immediately, and I was like, this is the best thing. This is why we do a podcast together. And so you you've you've won my friendship for a little while longer, at least. <laughs> just wait till you so, have to hear about more virus movies for the next four years yeah well well next week uh, i guess as a you know a trade-off for this and, and something else in the future uh i have decided to watch a film per your recommendation uh and we're finally leaving the 1940s uh to Going venture into, into the 2020s into the 2020 yeah. a 2020 movie uh nomad land uh which has been at the top of your suggestions for a while here the big film from last year i think it swept most of the seattle film critics awards right yeah um it was it was hugely dominant there um that and minari were pretty much sweepers for us so uh definitely uh worth checking out just for that maybe we cover the seattle film critic victors each year i don't know what we'll do but uh, that seems like a good thing we'll to see. do I, I, it's it seems worth checking out. It's piqued my interest enough based on your praise and everything and the, all the buzz around it. And uh, since it's coming to Hulu, that's going to make it easier for me to, to check it out as well. You know, you, you've given me a lot with these past couple 40s films. <laughs> uh, make sure, as always, to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at The Twin Geeks, and individually at Calvin Kempf and at David A. Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast, with Pavlos and Brogan, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. Martín